people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. I was thinking that the way you should think about this interview was as if it was a kind of an RPG and you three are playing as people who, and maybe the four of you actually, so that's Luke, Sam, other Sam, uh, Jert and Alex, you're all playing as like kind of characters who are trying to like, you know, you're in a squad and what you're trying to do is you're trying to get to the kind of secret chamber in the middle of the interview, <laughs> which contains a satisfied audience. And my questions, I'm kind of the, the kind of, I don't know, the demon, the demon who lives in the, in the maze, who lives in the labyrinth, who's like kind of trying to cast these these questions, which are also spells in the analogy. Uh, and you're trying to like kind of, you know, undo my spells, uh, which are terrible questions and reach the satisfied audience. That's how I'm thinking about this this, this interview. Um, hello, welcome to Travels For What? My name is Sam, uh, here with Alex as usual. And then we are also joined by a bumper crop of excellent guests. We have uh, Luke, Sam and Jert. Uh, hello. Hello. How are you guys doing? Morning. Oh. Yes, yeah, right. Fantastic. Okay. So we are here to discuss. Uh, do you want to tell us, Alex? Do you want to, do you want to launch into the... Um, what were we going to say? Yeah, so we're here to discuss um, these guys' new, uh, just about to come out, I think, uh, project uh, anti-fascist RPG uh, zine, which is... Much longer than I uh, than I was, you know, initially expecting. I thought we'd get a couple of scenarios and some nice artwork, but it's seventy eight pages long, almost. So it's a really like bumper uh, edition of this thing, and it's called Postcards from Cable Street, and it's specifically an anti fascist RPG. Um, so, so someone, gonna... can I can I ask a really brief question at the beginning? I'm a technical question for someone who has never played an RPG or at least has played an RPG, but only on the computer. What is this object? What are we discussing here? Like, what is an RPG? What do you do with it? How do you interact with it? And so on. Just like really basic level stuff for people who are totally, totally unfamiliar, such as myself. So uh, it's like, imagine that instead of having like, you know, your PlayStation or whatever, you've got a person. Uh, and they're like, <laughs> basically, it's like using the person as a computer. They're like describing stuff. It's a bit more social because it's you and your mates. Um, and you know, it's like rather than the game telling you what happens, you might roll some dice and be like, "Oh, I want to do this," and it's like, "Okay, that's kind of a bit risky." So, you might roll some dice. So, what we're actually sort of what we've built here, what we're um, chopping around in for you know benefits, um, is a collection of stuff you can use in your game. So, one person will read it and be like, "Whoa, this idea is really sick. I love this," and then they can use that to entertain their friends and then buy in it put some money towards charity at the same time so it's trying to also make a bit of a statement that shitheads aren't welcome um in our community and the community I, I, question is like broader rpg playing groups but also like geek culture more broadly as well definitely right? yeah there's crossover for sure um like we're specifically talking about that but there's definitely uh, yeah like it, it's a problem that is broader i think yeah personally. i mean i know I know that a lot of work is being done in, for example, the metal scene at the moment around similar issues, and you get that in quite a lot of subcultures. As in, you get you get, you get like a far right kind of infiltration to some extent of uh, subcultures. What what are the kind of the what other subcultures do you think there are? So you, you mentioned kind of metal subcultures, and obviously we're talking today about RPGs. 
anything else any other kinds of like subcultures that you think might be particularly prone to this kind of far-right interference i mean skinhead culture has obviously always had that issue um you know and people fighting back against it that's been going on really since the 80s at the very latest um ditto there's there's issues in the goth culture infiltration's probably the wrong word because what sure. you have is nazis that are genuine genuinely into this but also using it to recruit that's important yeah that's an important point um so yeah, there's the like calls a kind of coming like, from inside yeah. the house almost right like i think it's like anything that's got a lot of nerds basically to put it bluntly like anything where you know you've got people who are a bit less like well served by mainstream culture they try and build their own thing and they bring any of that poison along with them like a, the, the the first time i came I became aware of this kind of thing this phenomenon as an anti-fascist was um the kind of the adoption of Warhammer, particularly by certain sections of the alt-right, and the kind of God-Emperor memes that Trump was inspiring, inspired by the Imperium of Man from that particular universe. And it's something that's actually really fascinated me and I found really interesting is and how different kinds of cultural objects can be read in different ways for, for different purposes. So, for example, if you take Warhammer, that was, my understanding was it originally quite a satirical kind of take on a lot of these tropes and the Imperium of Man was not meant to be like a like a good, happy thing to be a thing to be like aspired to. It was a warning. Um, and some fascists have seen this kind of universe and this dead emperor ruling over everybody forever and kind of said, yes, this is exactly what we kind of want to happen. And this is a good, good scenario. So I found that uh, particularly uh, interesting about how we can read these things differently. You mentioned uh, skinhead culture as well. There's also this kind of like much longer history of kind of um, overlaps between high fantasy literature and or a, a kind of um, even invented traditions of um, folk, tra invented folk traditions in the early 20th and late 19th centuries, uh, which are used by people on the far right to kind of produce a much like, longer sense of, of, of history. Um, to their ideas, uh, which demonstrate a kind of, a, I guess, like a racial form of belonging um, that all people must kind of have in the same uh, way in a certain race and uh, in order to construct the idea of a, of a folk and do, and, and do so through um, various kind of cultural traditions which are projected back into the past, even if they've been fairly recently invented. That seems like it's kind of a di quite a different process than what's going on, for example, in the uh, in the, the cultures you're talking about. Do you think that there is this sense in which people are trying to project back in time a, a mythical uh, culture? Or is there just something, I guess, like more kind of, I don't know, like mundane going on? Or something about just kind of the, the dynamics of social isolation or of not being, I think as you described earlier, not being kind of served by a, a particular kind of culture particularly well? Um, yeah, well, how do you see those kind of those things playing out? I mean, I think there's an element of both. I mean, it's certainly the case that traditionally fascism has, for example, railed against modernism. There's always been quite a big fascist following of Lord of the Rings. So there is this harking back to a mythical past and a use of history almost to argue for that, that past to return, despite the fact that past, if you talk to any historians, is largely fictionalised. You know, I mean, the all-white Europe that the fascists talk back to never actually existed. 
I think it's that escapism part, right? Like, I mean, you know, you're talking about like orcs and dragons and goblins and shit. Like, it's you know, there's there's a bit of like fun with that, but it, partially it's escapism. And I think for some people, it's an escapism from like the burden of being a decent human being, and that's where like this stuff comes in, right? Like, it's like, oh yeah, back in my like fantasy games, it should be I don't have to I don't know respect women or pronouns or whatever, you know? Like, it's a a form an extra form of escape for them they don't feel like there's any of those pressures from the modern world there's also something kind of like slightly i guess like more connected between these two visions of the world though right in high fantasy as you were saying orcs goblins elves God, i'm kind of running out of uh things here but let's imagine that i've uh, produced a longer list uh dwarfs is that a thing yes the race of yeah. men and so on right like the, the, these are these in some ways like it's very easy to read these as a racial topography in the manner of like, uh, you know, everything from the kind of the 17th century and people are first like, okay, there are essentially four parts to um, people or there are five races in total or now you get more contemporary fascists are much more like kind of fine grained about this stuff, but nevertheless, they are still you know, kind of organizing the world around a certain kind of topography. And so the um, uh, topology, sorry, like a, a set of categories rather than a space, not topography. So the... Um, I think there's like a deeper connection here with like people's desire to feel like they are participating in a, or they have they have a place that is really fixed and clear in society, which is afforded to them by their race, right? And that seems to be what kind of fantasy suggests. And I wonder, so I'm I'm really guessing like how does one take those elements of fantasy, which seem to be so useful to fascism as an ideology, and like undercut them or disrupt them and like kind of engage with those that kind of racial topography that exists in high fantasy literature um in a way that is not so um that doesn't see race as completely determinative in the way that it is for uh you know a goblin who could never be good or a dwarf who could never be i don't know i don't know what the characters of these things are but i imagine they have like fixed characteristics they definitely can do, um, and I think like a big part of this is in how you know you present stuff. Like you deliberately complicate both your understanding and the understanding of your players, whether that's like at a table or in a book or in a charity compilation. You know, you <laughs> add more dimensions and more kind of attributes. You don't reduce people because even it's like yeah, sure, like oh, goblins generally bad or whatever. It's like well, why? Like you, you and, and pressing that why you kind of can either reveal something about the person presenting that information and they actually do think in these kind of outdated kind of simplifying boundaries or they're like oh no yeah that's a good point that's like an interesting question let's play to find out and that's like that kind of using it as an explorative tool rather than laying down some sort of dictates you can definitely instead be like well we don't know and let's talk about it and find out through the process of playing but yeah, I think like your point around it being used to simplify the world, like that's that definitely carries water. Like it's it's definitely a thing that attracts certain people because it's easier than real life. I guess that 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 aspect of being able to play with the categories as you play through them, right? So the narrative undermines the categories of who is good, who is bad, and so on. Yeah, totally. It's also like a, a really important reason why these things are normally done by as you were saying at the very beginning, like it's like playing with a person rather than playing with a computer right? because the, the person can make this decision more or less arbitrarily to kind of step outside this categorization whereas the computer is simply running the whatever algorithms the, the, the player is, not the player, the programmer has kind of uh, put into it. And so this, this social dimension of it is some, in some ways like the, the thing that allows you to, um, to question these categories or to get, kind of get beyond them.
I think it's also important to point out that, um, you know, RP, when we talk about RPGs, we're talking about not just fantasy, we're talking about many different genres. And, you know, you can construct a world that isn't like, you could have, that isn't like so racially tinged or whatever fantasy is. Um, I'm playing a, a, a game at the moment, uh, which is called Eclipse Phase, which is like a sci-fi version of d and I suppose. And in that one, it's a totally kind of, you can choose whatever body you want and you know it's not like the kind of dwarves are dwarves and goblins are goblins so it there, there is like a that 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 critique i think is particular to a certain genre i think um, and it's it's yeah. also to an extent a certain historical genre i mean what we have to remember is that dungeons and dragons started in the late 70s and society has moved on by then so we need to look at rpgs moving on as well because there are there are certain you know sexist and racist assumptions that come with that history. Uh, yeah, I was actually reading a thing on your that was retweeted by your Twitter the other day about uh, Warhammer and its kind of origins and how D and D has a quite like a there's a particular kind of fantasy style of like uh, sexualized um, women monsters. I don't know how to describe it like female spiders with like bikinis and stuff and that kind of style of kind of fantasy is, uh, you know, of the 70s and of the 80s. That's very true. Um, like I said at the start, this, there's a lot of stuff in here. Um, do you, each of you have a particular favourite uh, or kind of meaningful scenario within the, within the book that um, you might want to introduce quickly? I think I might be the only one with a copy of it. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm, I'm one of two of us uh, with a physical copy of it. Um, uh, we ordered the proofs. Um, I, I could definitely tell you uh, all of all of Sam's stuff. Uh, were the text pieces, uh, uh, the playlist, um, are fantastic. Um, yeah, I, 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 I love all of the game stuff. Uh, working games all day, every day. Um, what got me were, like I said, the, the text pieces, um, the the interview uh, that Luke did with Fiona. Um, I, that stuff was that stuff uh, hit me harder, better. Um, so the, the 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 PDF that we received is built. I mean, it's not going to be a PDF in the physical thing; it was like a physical copy. But um, it's built around a series of uh, distinct scenarios. I thought it was just going to be one thing, but it's not. As uh, Alex said at the very top, it's like a huge number of different scenarios. Do you want to just tell us like about one of them? The first one I had was the one on the train, <laughs> with an amusing reference to Mussolini's actual historical failure to make the trains run on time, which is uh, rarely mentioned. Um, do you want to just tell us one? My super favorite is uh, <clears throat> Izzy's Canned Laughter Hell. Uh, for uh, mothership, uh, you are essentially trapped. Your players are trapped inside this uh, space station, which is also uh, the setup for a sitcom. So that's the the the, the station's entire situation is they're recording a sitcom. So the actors are there, the producers there, the directors there. Um, bad shit's happening. Uh, the station is kind of going haywire, uh, you know, without giving too much, uh, too many spoilers. Um, I, I think Izzy wrote a, a fantastic 
setup. Uh, I think David did an amazing job with the design, and I can't. That's the one I can't wait to bring to the table. I mean, I think it's it's also important, and one of the things that we aimed for was it's a diverse um it's a diverse group of voices, it's a diverse group of games. How much are these um trying to? Uh, how much are you trying to like represent a certain politics and like have like a narco-communist game and everyone's a narco-communist or different like faction of the left and and how much do you want to be interrogating that politics itself and using that as a backdrop to tell other stories because it seems to me that there's it's quite easy I think to fall into the into a kind of a trap of representing the um, representing politics without actually engaging in it within the game itself. I think a big part of what we wanted to do was do both basically we wanted to have stuff that was explicitly like you are just straight up like trying to solve problems as you know somebody of a certain political persuasion in a certain situation and some of them are just like you know what here's just some cool game stuff that's like informed by it but doesn't necessarily grapple with it because it's like you know the, the big critique that a lot of people always have is like oh you know like the social justice warriors or whatever will always try and force their politics into the games and it's like it's even if you're like showing that you're not, you know, a piece of shit, basically, you're also trying to still have a good time and still just have fun. It doesn't need to all be that, but equally, you know, there's some stuff in here, like the constitution of moon number, lots of numbers after that. Like it, that's a really fun and interesting piece that is the constitution of a moon colony that's broken free. Like that's super interesting, right? Like that's a fun thing and it's kind of talking about your stuff talking about some of the actual difficulties of achieving something but also kind of telling a story about some of the mistakes they made and that's really interesting and it's a way to engage with your politics and represent them and talk about some of the problems with them and still have a cool fun game pit like item we're talking about this project as like an anti-fascist uh you know kind of rpg zine but obviously there's another kind of aspect that comes into it which is the anti-fascist like Anti-fascism as a politics that's practiced in, in you know, as separately as a uh, as anti-fascism. How, what has your history been in in that kind of politics? And it, it's also fine to have no history as well. Um, and how has that kind of informed your interest in RPGs, or how has it kind of um, interacted with that particular interest? Um, I mean, personally, I, back in the 90s, was a member of an anti-fascist um, group called Anti-Fascist Action for 10 years, give or take a year. And, I mean, it really just intersected because my other main interest was RPGs and geek them. And it's fair to say that a lot of the people I knew at the time had similar interests. So it really was just an organic procedure. Um, more recently, I took some time off because I was suffering from burnout. and actually started getting seriously back into anti-fascist work again, ironically, just before lockdown, which obviously has meant there's not a lot of things like demonstrations going on right now. It does mean there's not a lot of things about demonstrations going on, but it also does mean that like now that the whole of life is lived on the internet. So back in 2019, hallowed days before COVID, if you can remember that, like, you know, there was, it was, there was a sense like, I don't know, like 70% of life was online or something. All right, and now it's basically, it's almost at 100 and so I think like the, in, in this context, as what you might think of as kind of politics proper falls into kind of cultural representation, it falls into kind of strategies of, uh, of, of like kind of culture and, and, and these kind of things that happen online, the importance of cultural anti-fascism 
so you might think it was kind of the not like direct confrontation with the far right but politics that kind of a what you might call the meta politics which is like to attempt to um produce the kind of cultural grounds for future anti-fascist movements and to like oppose fascism not just as a, a particular concrete kind of political phenomenon but as a, a set of um ideas right? this takes on a new importance as everyone has just like now been spending all their time online right and so in some ways like this is a perfect moment for something like this to happen um i wonder what what you think is of a kind of a wider turning culture towards express anti-fascism and do you think there's anything else other than this particular kind of set of um scenarios for, an, for rpgs that might be others in kind of important in this trend towards a more like explicitly cultural anti-fascism i suppose one thing with with a lot of these kind of like you say this cultural stuff a lot of it's about building spaces and i think people building spaces it's going to be certainly to begin with on the down quiet and as we see a lot of people now potentially getting involved more as you say because life is the internet for a bit I think we're, gonna, we're not necessarily going to see it. it is going to be happening in the background. And whilst that's not necessarily the most effective for building that kind of hostile structure, because ultimately, like, that's what we want. We want to build a hostile environment for fascism, ultimately. Like, and then use that absence to build whatever your vision is. But, like, tactics dictates first you, you know, clear out the mess, then we'll build something new. Otherwise, your foundation's going to be rotten. Um, and I think we might not be seeing as much action as is actually going on, because I think a lot of people are doing stuff in the background. Like, you know, I mean, you know, there's private communities where people are talking, recruiting, thinking about what they do next. But I don't think there's a lot that's happening surface level beyond, like, you know, arguments on Twitter, which I don't know how much they matter. You know, it's it's one of those tough questions, because, like, diversity of tactics dictates, sure, you know, do your thing. Uh, but equally... Yeah, I've been in arguments on Twitter. I don't know if they're particularly useful for anyone. I guess some of the, some of the kind of criticism of this this kind of sub, uh, culture anti-fascism is essentially that it's subcultural, right? That it speaks only to small segments of the population who are um, interested in playing RPGs. I mean, I'm I am interested in playing RPGs. I've never actually done it, so this is the <laughs> um, this is like I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people in this kind of grey zone, right? Um, and so I think that even though there's this kind of criticism that one could make of, of, of like subculture anti-fascism, projects like this also allow for a much like softer entrance ramp, you know, into anti-fascism as like a broader culture, right? So yeah, there are two options. Either you can like kind of uh, enter into anti-fascism by basically being in some sense like physically threatened by the far right. And responding to that in an organized fashion or you can enter into anti-fascism by like the extremely slow and painstaking and actually really kind of useful work of um diffusing anti-fascist kind of norms and anti-fascist ideas into culture at large part of which contains quite well-defined subcultures right where um the far might have more of a kind of a foothold so i think like yeah like, as we mentioned yeah, like as as you mentioned earlier, like there's a certain trend within, like as what I termed, like you know, your nerd communities, with like there being this larger impact, like there's a larger percentage than versus the general population who are like you know super far right extremists or whatever. So I think like yeah, efforts within that subcultural areas have an outsized effect for what they should do just on sheer numbers because these are the recruiting grounds because it's where people end up when they're dissatisfied and like I don't think many people end up fascist without some level of dissatisfaction you know something makes you unhappy and then you turn into a fascist like there's not many you know jolly fascists out there 
Um, so I think like making these spaces hostile is really important. I would I would definitely second that. I think um, I, I don't I don't really see this necessarily as like a subcultural project. It's more an intervention into a into a certain subculture. Um, but it's not it's not saying okay, well you're shaking your head or so whatever. And I would also make the point that kind of geek culture is no longer like the niche thing it was. Like the the Marvel Cinematic Universe is you know omnipresent in our culture and is culture essentially. And so these things are taking on a, a much more kind of central a central place in and I would say an increasingly central place in in our kind of general general culture rather than subculture. In many ways, subculture is kind of breaking down. Um, and that's another reason why it's so important to be aware and be present about what, what's going on in different different places. And I'd also say that there is a lot to be said for people doing the work in cultures and subcultures they're already involved in. I think realistically, as someone who isn't a skinhead, me trying to intervene in the skinhead scene is not going to have the same impact as somebody who is known in that scene who goes to all the skinhead gigs declaring themselves anti-racist and anti-fascist. Yeah, that's, that's a really important point. There's a, just where I live, there's like a really famously racist pub just up the road uh, where lots of like kind of football hooligans go and drink and like have, uh, I guess, like fights uh, with other firms. Um, and strangely, I've not yet been able to um, make a serious intervention into this. Uh, you'll be shocked to know. Um, yes, no. Th th I think that's that's absolutely important, and like people should um, do uh, the political work like where they where they can do. Um, there's a kind of a broader trend as well. Like in, I'm thinking of kind of other things that are kind of RPG adjacent, like um, art world LARPing, right? So LARPing uh, live action role play, right? Like um, Brian Large, um, until I think maybe kind of 10, 15 years ago, confined largely to like historical reenactment and things like this. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Apologies to be kind of a LARP aficionado. Um, um, yeah, um, but I think that, that, as, as I am LARP, wrong. Okay, let's go. <laughs> as, a, as a LARPer, there was quite a lot of sci fi stuff. It's partly because of visuals, it's the stuff that gets recognized tends to be the high fantasy but you had quite a lot of small little games playing with things like Far Future and things like that at the time as well. I once did a LARP about a dating app uh, that was uh, in the kind of the near future and we had to kind of go on dates in, in, the, in the LARP, which I don't like doing in real life. So it was a pretty stressful LARP anyway. But yeah, there's been this kind of expansion of like LARP and kind of thinking about um, strategies of, I guess, like, uh, cloaking yourself in avatars uh, or cloaking yourself in a kind of um, in, in a character who is not yourself as a way of exploring like a totally different kind of world um, and I'm really interested in, in these games in particular in this kind of tension between on the one hand um, this world in which we know things about uh, each other in which we have to kind of like collaborate to do certain uh, tasks and this kind of fantasy world and it seems like all of the the the, the, the th in the ones I kind of looked through there was this like continuous tension between a sense of like sort of um, unusualness or fantasy and like quite realism and kind of um, quite intensely kind of uh, I don't know particularity or like kind of even just like yeah realism to to the games and I wonder like how this is, this is kind of useful I think as a mix for letting us deploy strategies that are, I guess, like um, kind of familiar, but on the other hand, have this, this aspect of being estranging, um, making us uh, a stranger to ourselves, and therefore allowing a certain kind of freedom. Oh, I, I, think it, I think there's certainly an element of that. And 
I mean, because I mean, I actually before lockdown was running LARPs um, every month or so. And what it does do is it gives in some ways minor or one-off scenarios and it gives people a safe way of experimenting with different personas and different worlds that you can then hang up at the end of the day. But I think what's vital for that and what we did is, I mean, because I mean, it was my own group and it was a small group, it was the fact that the group had formal anti-racist, formal anti-fascist, formal anti-sexist policy that gave people the freedom to experiment with that in the first place. That's that's much more succinct and uh, <laughs> well phrased than I was going for. Thank you. Yes, good. Um, what's I guess like kind of interesting about like contemporary foreign cultures, like non-skinhead cultures or non kind of like uh, you know Nazis with swastikas on their faces kind of culture, like the alt right or something like that, which is that it's it's both on the one hand kind of engaging with these like these myths, these kind of fantasies, the kind of the you know the meme magic and the, the god of Keck and so on, right? You know, all, all these kind of kind of uh, aspects of mythology. Or I can pretend aspects of kind of a pseudo mythology, while at the same time totally playing around with identity uh, by like sometimes being a troll, sometimes not being a troll, sometimes being really earnest, sometimes being really serious. And so there's the same kind of like play with identity that goes on perversely in some parts of the contemporary far right. And it's not in any way identical to what's happening in most LARPs, but there is this kind of fluidity to, to the far right that I think is, um, yeah, increasingly kind of like a, a tricky thing to get a handle. They're all irony poisoned, effectively, right? Like they'll take the piss out of their own beliefs, but it's like a weird self-reinforcing loop. It starts as a joke, you keep saying it, you start genuinely saying it. I mean, that's happened to me with dumb jokes, right? That's how like memes work. Like as like a younger person, I kind of I don't know. I feel like obviously I don't get the beliefs, but I get how you can kind of cycle over stuff and iterate on it so many times until you don't know whether it's a joke or not. And it's like I'm just saying it, and I hate that I'm saying it, but I'm going to keep doing it and it's it's um a very weird and potentially very modern thing the idea Guys, is like yeah, yeah. so relatable <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm heavily heavily related to what you just said there right i also <laughs> i guess we, we just finished up two quite big projects and i was reading a lot of far material and i started falling into the patterns of this kind of casual um bit a bit bad internet language you know not, not racist stuff but like you know the kind of uncaring language that is often you often find on these in on certain corners of Twitter and on you know four channel stuff. The kind of yeah, like I said, irony poisoned um, uncaringness almost, which I didn't like about myself when I did change. So yeah, I do I do relate to that quite heavily actually. <laughs> I want to ask about cringe. I, I didn't. I, I want. I have, a, I have a question here. I don't know how to formulate it. So. For those who do not know, <laughs> cringe is like um, when something is embarrassing or like kind of makes you feel kind of squeamish. And, and cringe is often kind of like a, a response of people who are very online, who have developed through being online an extremely refined and somewhat like defensive sense of what people should be doing, right? So like people who think that things are cringe by and large have like um, an extremely clear and often quite arbitrary sense of what is cool and what is cool to be doing and what is not cool to be doing. And I wonder if this kind of irony poisonedness that you were discussing in, in, in relation to the online far right, which I totally agree with, I wonder if that kind of irony poison comes out of a kind of reflexive defense of things that you might otherwise uh, enjoy. Sorry, reflect, defense against things you might otherwise 
enjoy. So, um, for example, an interest in um, RPGs or Warhammer um, is undoubtedly not um, what, like, uh, you know, the cool kids uh, do, right? But nevertheless, like, and, and so you might think about this kind of like fringes a kind of defensiveness against the possibilities of enjoyment, right? So you could enjoy yeah. this stuff. Cringes about it's yeah. I'm not like that is what a lot of it boils down to, and it's it's that defining the self through the negation of others. Yes. It's like you see it a lot, like internally. There's like the kind of there's the out group and then the in group cringe, right? And it's like, oh, I'm a I might be into this, but I don't like that sort of thing. And it's it's distancing the self from what you perceive. Oh, I don't want that like bad, you know, whatever it is to rub off on me. So they're cringe. Um, and like, yeah, like you say, it's that kind of like hyper refined, overdeveloped sense of what's good and what's bad because it's, I mean, it comes from insecurity, right? Like people who are like, oh, that's cringe or whatever. It's because they don't like themselves on some level. And it's, you know, they're trying to make themselves feel better because at least I'm not like that. And saying something like that is easier than trying to make yourself a better person. Like, you know, it's much easier to say, well, at least, you know, I'm not like that guy rather than oh, I should work on myself. And I think that's where a lot of it comes from, this cringe. But I mean, you know, it happens in group and any, everyone will catch themselves doing it. You know, like you see someone post something and it's like, oh, why did you say that? Like you put that in a really goofy way, you fool or something. It's like you posted cringe, but it's like, oh, they just made a mistake. It's not a big deal. And there's no need to like push them away. It's fine. Often I think that the, the, the things people describe as cringe are also things people might otherwise really care about. Like for example, like it's cringe to feel things. Uh, it's oh yeah, to... emotions are the most cringe thing possible, right? Like, right. any genuine, sincere expression is cringe, and it's like uh, until someone goes, "No, it's based. It's cringe or whatever." Like, it's it's ridiculous, <laughs> and it is irony poisoned. Like, yeah, right. So, I mean, so... I, I, as a Gen Xer, I have to say, I think a lot of that one is our fault. Is that there is? A, I mean, obviously, talking about generations <laughs> is always a bit fraught. But there is a way in which my generation presented taking anything seriously, even if you should do, as something that was a bit beyond the pale. Absolutely, yeah. And I think, and so, and the, the long-term effect of that, I think, maybe this is overstating my case, like substantially, but like, let's go with that. The long-term effect of refusing to take anything seriously is that you ultimately take the most seriously that which should not be taken seriously at all. Right. Um, yeah. For, for example, you ultimately take serious notions of a kind of mythical racial collective, right? Which is like a nonsensical notion that like no one, no one should seriously propagate. And yet, um, this is the kind of the core of quite a lot of far beliefs, right? And so, by trying to refuse sincere, sincere attachment to anything that um, uh, makes you feel in a kind of a problematic or a kind of a confusing way. For yourself right like, so you're, you're not quite sure how to feel about it or it makes you feel ambiguous or makes you feel vulnerable or something like this right like so at the very end of that process of refusing all feelings of vulnerability lies absolutely uncritical assertions of continuity with the most mythically absurd objects right because like otherwise you end up in this total state of nihilism and you you can't really live like that so i think even if cringe is not itself a fascist feeling the end result of a lifetime spent cringing is fascism that's my extremely <laughs> bold claim in this that's my take for the episode that's it okay that's a massive huge take. I'm done. um if someone wanted to uh if someone's like interested in uh rpgs and wants to like kind of get into 
uh, playing an RPG, where would you recommend people uh, look online or how do, you th how, do, how do they go about it? Because um, oftentimes, I suppose the way I, I started playing RPGs was there was, a, I had a friend who was very into it already and offered to run a game and, you know, I kind of learned as I was going along basically, but I guess it's harder to like meet up with friends right now. And so a lot of these things are happening online anyway. So I just wondered where you would recommend people looking apart from, of course, uh, uh, postcards from Cable Street. There are several, uh, you know, uh, scenarios, uh, adventures, modules uh, in postcards from Cable Street. Um, I'll do a quick list of stuff that they're written for. Um, Mothership, sci-fi horror RPG, um, uh, the original blue collar space game. Um, this is the blue Masoni. collar space game. Sorry, total, total, oh. total not lack of knowledge over here. What is a blue uh, collar space game? Uh, so think Alien, uh, like the, the the first Alien film. Uh, uh, you are you're on the ship. You're 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 Corpo God, no. you're right. Oh, no. <laughs> you are you are you're an employee, uh, and you are trying to get you're trying to live your daily life and do your job and oh mm -hmm. no cosmic horror or you know, <laughs> mental horror or physical or something happens and you've got to fight that back um <clears throat> and the like i said the blue collar aspect comes in from uh the corporation from you are actually inspired you know or sorry you're actually employed uh, uh by that um uh, and like I said, and then the cosmic horror, the the dread. Um, yeah, that's you know, a real health and safety. Other yeah. people, um, uh, and then uh, Melsonian Arts Council, um, uh, our flagship game there, uh, Troika, um, whimsical uh, science fantasy. So uh, you know, a, a healthy dose of uh, everything weird. Uh, but as, as Luke said, um, the best way to get at us, to, to get to, to talk to us um, is uh, Discord. And, you know, just uh, on the back of the book, there's like a list of uh, system names. Uh, grab those, search that, you know, add Discord to your search stream. You're going to find um, a lot of open, welcoming places uh, where the creators are there. No, I'm just going to point out that someone who is like kind of... Uh, been playing for a, a year or so but not like in it in it necessarily is that I think the good thing about RPGs particularly is that it's kind of you can play off the kind of narrative aspect as well as like the game aspect as well like you you there's no failing at it it's just, as long as you're together telling a good story um you can like kind of bend some rules if you want to or play a simplified version to get you started and then add more complexity like the the games the person running the game is you know accommodating to the group as well in many ways and so I think it's a it's a a, a hobby uh, that's kind of got kind of a quite a, like a long um a long ramping ramping up to um to uh into do you know if you know what I mean uh where can people uh download the or access sorry access the uh the book more info soon. Uh, we're we're putting the uh, finishing touches on the final product right now. Um, all of those places. As soon as we have a final list, we'll get you guys the final list for. Uh, and it will be it will be up on the Twitter as well. As yes. soon as we have a final list of where people can get it. 
And the Twitter is... Uh... The Twitter is cable underscore from, but if people search for postcards from Cable Street, we should come up. Great. And we'll put that in our uh, episode show notes as well, so people will be able to find it quite easily. Um, just the other thing I wanted to mention is that all proceeds from this fanzine are going to two groups. Um, the long-standing anti-fascist group, Hope Not Hate, and football lads and lasses against fascism, which obviously, again, do, do subcultural work, but in their case, they very much do it on the terraces. Yes. I mean, I, I, I mean football culture is, is so unbelievably huge. I would, I would, I would uh, shy away from calling it even a subculture, but yes, absolutely. Um, they're both uh, really interesting groups. Um, thank you very much to uh, everyone for coming. Uh, go and get this object uh this book um postcards from cable street um we'll see you very soon thank you very much cheers, yeah thank thanks. you that was that was a really interesting really good conversation yeah cheers i'm Kami, and i'm franz and together we are co-hosts of the doomer versus bloomer podcast on the channel zero network every week i'm going to complain about how the world is fucked Things are definitely going to get worse before they get better. And we're all probably going to die. And I disagree with Kami and think that having hope is important. We can th make things better, but only if we believe we can and put in all the effort we're able to into organizing against capitalism in the state. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> That's the core of our podcast, y'all. It's our shtick. We disagree. <laughs> Uh, find our show on SoundCloud or whenever, wherever you find podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Doomer v. Bloomer. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed that, then you can go over to Patreon, where we now have a whole bunch of more premium episodes and essays and other things like that. We're also starting a book club for people who want to get more into this stuff. You can read along with us. We'll talk about it. We'll have regular Zoom calls. It'll be great fun. And on the higher tier, we'll even send you a copy of our two books when they drop. That's patreon.com slash 12 rules for what. All the support we get means a lot to us and it really does help us grow this project. And thanks a lot for listening again and I'll see you very soon. 12 rules. <laughs>